what is really the most upstream thing that is actually regulating, controlling human energy levels is actually our mitochondria. They are environmental sensors. They are like the canaries in the coal mine. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to episode 147 of the Biohacker Babes. I'm Renee and I'm tuning in with my beautiful sister Lauren today. Hi, What's up? Hey, Nays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the sun's shining here. We had a crazy, crazy storm. I was wondering if it was going to still be pouring when we started the podcast. It was one of those where you think the ceiling's going to cave in. It was so oh, loud. Geez. But now the sun is out. It looks beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. And of course, it's sunny here. It's going to hit 100 today or officially. It's sunny the there because I'm not there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when Lauren Sorry. goes to Vegas, the sun goes away <laughs> or the wind comes in. Sorry about that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, today is a very, very special day. We have an amazing guest coming on for you today. We have Ari yes. Witten. Oh my goodness. Where do we begin? We have been following Ari for a long time. He has an incredible podcast as well. The energy blueprint. Um, we kick off the show. I tell a little bit about, you know, kind of how I found Ari, but quick recap is he had a very similar health journey to me as far as Epstein-Barr virus, chronic fatigue syndrome. So I actually did his energy blueprint course. I'm guessing back in like 2016. So I've been following his work. He just does amazing things with nutrition, exercise, holistic health, sleep, circadian rhythm, light, really all, I mean, biohacking topics. He is just a wealth of information. And I think we picked his brain as much as we possibly could in an hour today, but we would love to have him back on the show to take a deeper dive. And if you feel like we're really just touching the top of the surface today, you are correct. But for a deeper yeah. dive, definitely <laughs> check out his new book. It just came out on May 10th, I believe. It's called Eat for Energy. He breaks down all the different nutrition things that you need to know for circadian rhythm, fasting, gut health, brain health, sleep, uh, fat loss, weight loss, so many great topics. So I highly, highly recommend that you check out his book. Mm-hmm. Really comprehensive. And he just has such a broad spectrum, holistic view of wellness and energy versus fatigue. I love the way he explains mitochondria, which has been a favorite word of mine <laughs> probably since I was a kid, but I never fully understood the power of the mitochondria. And Ari is, I'm just going to call him the mitochondria guy. He is just a wealth of knowledge about this very, 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 very important word. Um, so we hope you enjoyed this talk on mitochondria and he has plenty of resources. So scroll on to the bottom of the show notes. So you can find lots more of Ari His podcast is called Energy Blueprint. It's unbelievable. He has amazing guests and um, yeah, you will enjoy him. Yeah. And actually fun fact, I have to credit Ari. He is the one that I learned the word hormesis from. 
No way. Yep. I think maybe back in like 2016, he was the first oh person. And I was like, what is this hormesis thing? I don't even think I knew how to pronounce it properly. <laughs> and now in the biohacking world, that's like thrown around like candy, you know? So. Oh yeah. Hormetic candy. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh my yes. gosh. Um, yeah. And I, what I really, really loved was learning about caffeine, the way caffeine works in our brain and the overuse of stimulants. He has this incredible product energesis that I had. It was like my favorite thing that I had on my kitchen counter for a long time. If you are interested in cycling off of caffeine, which you probably will be interested in trying after hearing this podcast, he has an amazing product. He has lots of products, but energesis is really, really awesome at rebuilding, strengthening your mitochondria. So you can, not his words, but resensitize your body to caffeine. Yeah. Great advice. All right. So a little bit more about Ari. Ari Witten is the founder of the Energy Blueprint. He is an energy and fatigue specialist who focuses on taking an evidence-based approach to energy enhancement, nutrition, exercise. He's also a natural health expert and number one best-selling author. He has been studying nutrition and holistic health for more than two decades and has a Bachelor of Science from San Diego State University in kinesiology with specialization in fitness, nutrition, and health. He also has a background in exercise, physiology, and fitness. He holds two advanced certifications from the National Academy of Sports Medicine as a corrective exercise specialist and performance enhancement specialist. In addition, he recently completed the three years of coursework for his PhD in clinical psychology and education that rounds out all aspects, nutrition, fitness, and psychology of his approach to optimal health. Ari is a tireless researcher who has obsessively devoted the last 20 years of his life to the pursuit of being on the cutting edge of the science on health and energy enhancement. And I will just say ditto to that. He is always on the cutting edge of all of that. And his... <laughs> theory and perspective around fatigue, I think is so fascinating and unique. I know that you all are just going to enjoy this episode as much as we did. <laughs> oh, you don't even know what you're in store for. I can't wait. Can we go? Can we do it? Let's do it. All right. We're bringing Ari on. Welcome Ari to the biohacker babes podcast. We're so happy Thank to have you today. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we have been counting down the days for this interview. We're super excited. I've been following your work for a long time. We were just chatting before we hit record. I'm assuming I've been following you maybe since 2016, around that time. And I was personally really drawn to your work and your story because I personally went through a similar health journey. Um, and our listeners, you maybe have heard my story before, but Ari, I'm just now telling you on the spot. I actually was studying abroad in Spain and got mono. And my life changed from that point on. I ended up with debilitating chronic fatigue, brain fog, had to keep looking for answers. It was not only the Epstein-Barr, but mercury toxicity, uh, HPA axis dysfunction, or what we thought was adrenal fatigue. And I know you've done a ton of research on that term and what was going on there. But um, mm -hmm. so I really resonated with your story and I really appreciate all the work that you have done. Honestly, reading the Energy Blueprint program really changed my health journey. It really pointed out new new ways of looking at chronic fatigue. And we're going to get into a lot of that today. So to kick it off, I would love to hear from you, like what, or how do you feel like traditional or even functional medicine maybe failed you in your journey? And what really like pushed you to keep looking for answers around the topics of chronic fatigue, Epstein-Barr or anything else? Yeah. So this, this could be the whole podcast. We could, we could, we could talk Part for a couple one. hours just on this, but um, the, the very short version is 
you know, I saw a number of conventional doctors when I was first sick with mono. And uh, first of all, it took them forever to even just diagnose me. They initially diagnosed me with strep throat. They prescribed me penicillin. I was on penicillin for 10 days. It only made me worse. Then they had no idea. Then I went to see several other specialists. Eventually, someone thought to test me for, uh, for mono, and um, they tested Epstein-Barr virus. And then it was several, like two or three weeks later that the test results came back. Um, by that time, I'm, I was already six or eight weeks into the illness. And then, you know, the blood results, test results came back and my Epstein-Barr virus titers were off the charts. So, and then at the end of all of that, it was, you know, it was, I was like, okay, well, now that you figured out that I have Epstein-Barr virus causing this infection, what can you do for me? Well, nothing really, you know, <laughs> they, they don't have anything to offer. Just sleep. Yeah. So at the end of all of that, it, you know, it wasn't really help of help to see any of those doctors. And that was one thing. And then... I dealt with, uh, like you, severe chronic fatigue for about a year following that. Saw lots of conventional doctors. They had nothing to offer for that either. And we can talk more in depth about not just my personal anecdote, but about the, the, dat the data on that. Um, and then I also saw, you know, alternative health practitioners, natural health, functional medicine practitioners. And for the most part, they, they had little to offer. Basically, the default thing was diagnosing me with adrenal fatigue. They even ran cortisol labs on me and my cortisol came back normal and they still insisted that I had adrenal fatigue. And, uh, and that was kind of part of my initial skepticism of that diagnosis was it seemed like whether I had high cortisol, low cortisol, or normal cortisol, they were intent on diagnosing me with adrenal fatigue. And that, that doesn't make sense. You know, that, that, that's not how a diagnosis is made. You don't run a test and then regardless of whatever the result is, force people into that diagnosis. The test, if for that test to have to be valid, there has to be a cert certain result that it denotes, okay, you have the, such and such diagnosis. And there has to be a certain result that says you do not have this diagnosis. <laughs> you don't run a test and go, you have this diagnosis, regardless of what the results are. Um, and it's just dependent, you know, it just, it, it's the only difference is what phase of the adrenal fatigue we're going to say you're in based on whether you're high, low or normal. And yeah, so, I mean, they, they were kind of insisting on lumping me into that box, even though the test results didn't support it. They were offering treatments. And then, uh, and then I started to explore, I actually became obsessed with adrenal fatigue for about a year. And I ended up doing, uh, probably a deeper dive into the scientific literature on that topic, um, the relationship of HPA axis function, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and cortisol levels to fatigue. I ended up doing a, probably a deeper dive into that scientific literature than I, I have to imagine maybe almost everybody on the planet. Maybe there's a handful of people that have spent as much time on that as I have, but yeah, I'm definitely up there. And at the end of all of that, I really, I kind of, I actually compiled all of the scientific literature, put it all up online in the form of video lectures and um, screenshots of all the studies and the cortisol measurements from these studies uh, where they're looking at healthy people without fatigue versus people with fatigue and measuring their cortisol levels. And at the end result of that is that the body of literature clearly did not support the idea that number one, most people with fatigue have cortisol abnormalities. They don't. 
And the literature actually doesn't even support the idea of adrenal fatigue, the idea that there is such a thing as adrenal fatigue. So it was really that, the combination of those two things, kind of realizing conventional medicine doesn't really have anything to offer people with fatigue. And uh, the natural health and functional medicine community is obsessed with this whole adrenal fatigue narrative that just isn't supported by the scientific literature. And that was the big catalyst for me to change my area of focus because I've been obsessed with health science since I was a little kid, since I was 12 years old. This is lifelong passion for me, but it was more like body composition, fat loss, muscle gain for the first decade or so of that. And then this experience was the catalyst that made me go, doesn't seem like anybody really knows what, what is actually controlling human energy levels. So maybe I can shift my focus there and be the guy who sort of builds out a, a real scientific framework of what controls and regulates human energy levels. Why are some people fatigued? How do we get our energy back? How do we optimize our energy? And that's, that's really been my work for the last decade. So amazing. It's so interesting that functional medicine has kind of created that term adrenal fatigue and it's evolved so much over the last decade. Plus it sounds almost like this IBS diagnosis. It's like this collection of symptoms that we don't really know what it is. No one wants to admit that we don't know. So they just want to put you into a category rather than accepting that we don't know everything and continuing to ask questions. So can you, I mean, I think we could spend the rest of the podcast going into what you then discovered was actually the root of chronic fatigue, but in a nutshell, can you introduce what was missing or what did you wish that you had known then that you know now? Yeah. Let me, let me comment on the first part of what you said, because actually what you said there yeah. is very interesting. What, what that whole experience made me realize is the extent to which probably like 99% of people in, in, and this is true of anything, whether we're talking about MDs or functional medicine doctors or personal trainers or chiropractors or physical therapists or whatever, like 99% of people are just following and repeating what they hear other people saying instead of actually digging into the primary literature themselves and drawing their own conclusions. And so mm -hmm. this is how you can have a situation where you have, this is almost like too absurd to even put into words, but you can have hundreds of millions of people and, you know, tens of thousands of practitioners and, and people with, even with, you know, impressive credentials who believe in something, who are diagnosing their patients with something that the scientific literature doesn't even support is a real thing. Like that's the extent to which people can just follow and sort of regurgitate what they hear others saying and accept it as true. And yeah, so anyway, I, th I think that's, that's like, that's an important thing to just be aware of is how many practitioners are just sort of following cookie cutter recommendations and ideas that other people are saying instead of really thinking for themselves and analyzing the literature for themselves. And then yeah. the second part of your question, Sorry, I went on a digression there about that topic. It was just important to say, but no, the, totally the, important. The, yeah. The, the the main part of your question was say it again. What what would I sort of do differently now? What do you wish you knew back then that you know now? Well, the importance of the mitochondria. Number one, you know the the basically within conventional medicine, and you ask them what controls what regulates human energy levels, and you get one of these. 
I don't, <laughs> we don't, we don't really know. Huh? <laughs> um, and, and the data on that is basically there's, there's research, uh, from a paper called fatigue and overview, which is, um, basically a compilation of the literature and evidence-based guidelines for physicians in terms of treating their, uh, patients with chronic fatigue. And this paper literally says only in 5% of cases, five out of every 100 people that come to them complaining of chronic fatigue, do they find anything on their blood test results that can explain their fatigue? Five out of every 100 fatigued people. And typically that's something like they find anemia, they find diabetes, they find hypothyroidism, something like that. But 95 out of 100 people that go to a doctor complaining of fatigue are, are not told anything uh, as that can explain their fatigue. They, they don't know. And most of those physicians don't have any training in nutrition, don't have any training in like sleep optimization, circadian rhythm, other lifestyle habits, uh, factors, which are the main factors that are driving energy problems. You know, there's, they don't really know. And then within uh, alternative functional medicine, natural health, it's everybody's been focused on the adrenals, which is wrong. And the, the main thing, just a quick digression, that, that's not to say that cortisol and adrenal function and HPA axis function doesn't relate in any way to energy levels. It is a one potential variable, just like thyroid hormones are a variable, testosterone is a variable, estrogen and progesterone are a variable, growth hormone, and, um, and a million other things, right, in the body are also okay. one of many factors that play a role in energy levels. But what is really the most upstream thing that is actually regulating, controlling human energy levels is actually our mitochondria. And the mitochondria were, were taught to us in college and, and high school biology courses as these sort of mindless energy generators. They're the, the powerhouse of the cell is what we learn in biology. And that's true, and they are that. But uh, in the last decade or so, there's been a massive discovery around mitochondria. And it, it is that they are not just mindless energy generators that just take in carbs and fats and pump out energy. Um, if that were the case, uh, you know, having more energy would be as simple as just eating more food, giving, you know, <laughs> pump, putting yeah. more carbs and fats into your system so your mitochondria can pump out more energy. It turns out mitochondria have a second role in addition to being energy generators that is just as important as their role as energy generators. And that is they are environmental sensors. They are like the canaries in the coal mine of our body that are constantly taking samples of what's going on in the body and basically asking the question, is it safe to produce energy? Is it safe for us to be in energy mode? And if it's not, if they're picking up on signals that it's unsafe, that the body is under stress or under attack in some way, they, sh they turn down the dial on energy production and shift resources towards cellular defense. Now, if this sounds like a weird concept, let's just imagine, let's imagine that the three of us were in a house together right now, and we were in, let's say, the Ukraine, and the Russians are attacking, and they throw poison gas in the street, okay? It, it would be a huge mistake for us to just go about our normal daily routines and say, well, let's leave, leave the windows open, let the fresh air in, let's go for a walk outside, enjoy the day. It's a beautiful day outside. Let's go exercise, right? Let's go for a run in the park. 
if you do that, then if you continue to operate in that mode, then you are going to be exposed in a much bigger way to that stressor. So what makes sense in that scenario is to shut things down, to seal off the house, to stay indoors, to not be in energy mode where you're going out and you're, you're out and about, but you're sealing yourself in and protecting yourself from the threat. And that is exactly what our cells do, um, orchestrated by the mitochondria in response to stressors. The mitochondria have the ability to sense virtually every type of stressor imaginable. Everything from environmental toxins to sleep deprivation, to poor nutrition, to uh, light deficiencies and toxicities, to psychological stress, to everything. They, they can sense basically everything. And in response to that total body stress load that they are under, um, they will turn down the dial on energy production, shift resources towards cellular defense. And this is fundamentally the, the, the most upstream thing that is actually regulating human energy levels. And our energy, just to summarize everything I just said there, human energy, your energy as a person is basically a reflection of the degree to which your mitochondria are either operating in energy mode or defense mode. So if you want more energy, the, the first and most important task is to allow your mitochondria to shift more into energy mode by removing some of those stressors. Yeah, that is fascinating. If only we learned that in high school science rather than, I mean, I thought mitochondria was the coolest word ever, but if I had known that it would be the driving force in my health and wellness journey for the rest of my life, that might've been an important piece of information a teacher yeah. could have shared at that point. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think you mentioned this in your book as something that people can all relate with is like when you are sick with like a cold or a flu, how you feel tired. That's your body's natural response to say, please lay down, take a nap, get some extra rest. I know a lot of people will just like push that aside and push themselves through it. And then they get sicker and sicker and they're like, why can't I recover? And that's definitely something I experienced big time with Epstein-Barr. It's like, all I wanted to do was sleep. What would you say for the mitochondria, like are the top three things that are damaging our mitochondria, like in today's world, if you could name three? Poor nutrition for sure. And along with that comes poor gut health. If your nutrition sucks, your gut health is going to suck as well. Circadian rhythm and sleep issues are massive. And I would say environmental toxicants. And then I'll add a fourth, and this is, this is maybe its own thing, um, which is hormetic stress, which is lack, lack of hormetic stress. And we can talk about what that does to mitochondria. But um, I, I also want to comment on what you said about just the, the, the sickness. This is an experience of exactly what I'm talking about. If your mitochondria are perceiving that they're under attack from a pathogen, from a virus, for example, that's, that's what they do. They shut down energy production. They turn down energy production, shift resources towards cellular defense. You, as a person, subjectively experience the symptom of being tired, being low energy, and being sleepy. And what's important to understand, I just want to emphasize this, is that that is actually an adaptive, intelligent response by the body. Um, it is helpful for your body when it is under attack to, for you to rest 
and allow the body to not produce, to not be forced to produce lots of energy um, and instead to shift resources towards cell defense. If you've got a cold or a flu and you go about business as usual and you say, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to work out and I'm going to go for my 5K run, you will actually hinder your immune function and make yourself sicker by doing that. Okay, so this, this is an intelligent response by the body. And um, this kind, this general principle is widespread in, in nature. Why do bears hibernate in the winter during a harsh winter? It's hmm. the same principle. When the environment is harsh, is perceived to be harsh, the body responds intelligently by turning down the engines to survive a harsh environment better than it would if the engines were kept running high. Um, and this is true of many, many different animals, um, microscopic animals and worms and things like that go into a state called dour in response to uh, perceived in harsh environments where they essentially go into like a state of hibernation or dormancy. And as soon as they perceive the environment to be safe again, after weeks or months in that state, they turn the engines back on and will basically come back to life. So what I think is that we need to perceive chronic fatigue as essentially the same thing. It's not, it's not black or white. You're not in hibernation or awake, right? There, there's some gray area between where your body basically is sort of engaging in a hibernation-like state. It's down-regulating. It's, it's turning down the engines, um, not completely to the point where you're dead, but to, to a large extent, it's turning down the engines in, t- in terms of energy production to help you better survive uh, this perceived harsh environment. What's up, biohackers? We have some really exciting news for you today. Our friends over at Bioptimizers have done it again. They've just released their new and improved formula for Magnesium Breakthrough, the most powerful magnesium supplement on the market today. This product was already amazing, and you've probably heard us rave about it before, but Bioptimizers has continued to research and improve it. This new fourth-generation formula means Magnesium Breakthrough is now even more potent and effective for reducing stress, improving sleep, boosting energy levels. And if you've already taken Magnesium Breakthrough before, you'll want to try the new formula as soon as you can because it now includes cofactors like vitamin B6 and manganese, and these are really helpful with the absorption of magnesium. And if you've never tried Magnesium Breakthrough before, then now's the perfect time to try it. So Here's what you need to know about magnesium. Two really important reasons to take it. First, magnesium is involved in 80% of the body's metabolic reactions. Yes, you heard me correctly, 80%. And second, about 75% of people are not getting enough magnesium. I mean, there's many reasons why that's happening, but you can see that it's a much bigger problem than most people even think. When you don't get enough magnesium, you suffer from poor sleep, low energy, higher stress levels. All these things that we don't want, right? So in every bottle of Magnesium Breakthrough, you'll actually get seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium, and these can help you sleep longer and deeper, reduce those stress levels, help you feel more calm, and really give you that abundant all-day energy that all of us want, right? 
And also because it supports mental wellness, magnesium breakthrough can help you to finally feel like yourself again. So simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and we think you'll be pretty amazed by the improvements in your mood and your energy and your sleep. Hopefully you're going to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to go for the day. So Bioptimizers is kind enough to give our listeners an exclusive offer, and we will put all of this information in today's show notes, but go to www.magmag breakthrough.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use code biohackerbabes at checkout because that will actually get you 10% off, plus you'll get free shipping. All right, let's get back to the show. So if someone is battling, maybe it is a virus or some kind of pathogen, and that's why their cells are responding that way, do you feel like they need to eliminate that pathogen before they can start doing all this other stuff? Or can they do it at the same time, like focus on mitochondria and detox at the same time. Yeah. Well, so are you talking about specifically pathogens like infections? Yes. Okay. Chronic infections are a tricky subject and I think it probably differs depending on the specific pathogen you're talking about. Okay. I was just curious. I think think this, this is a tricky area in general where it's, it's one area where I'm hesitant to express strong opinions. And I'll tell you why I, I know many different, um, practitioners that specialize in chronic infections and um, I've seen many of them report great results, and they'll say things like, oh, you know, before you do anything else, you really have to attack that, that, that uh, pathogen. And I, I've seen, you know, some of them reporting success, um, but I've also seen a lot of people who have tried that, who are, who are convinced that they have um, a chronic infection, let's say chronic Epstein-Barr or cytomegalovirus or something like that. They've had it for years and years and years, and they've seen a bunch of practitioners who specialize in treating these pathogens, and they've tried a million different things, and nothing works, and they still have the chronic infection, and that's the, and that's the, the main source of their problems. So to be honest, I'm, I'm actually pretty skeptical of the approach that sort of targets uh, the infection first and, and like sort of as the main thing is like just we got to throw a bunch of herbs and drugs, antiviral drugs and, you know, immune boosting things and we have to attack this, this pathogen. I, I just haven't seen it get great results in my experience in the people that I know who are complaining of chronic infections. I'm of the opinion that what we really need to do is, is build up the body's overall health. So, you know, I, I liken it to this, like if you are, let's say you're driving a car and you drive a Ford Explorer or whatever, and, um, your car starts to have a problem and it's making a weird noise or it's not starting or something like that. You take it to the mechanic, they're going to plug it into the system and they're going to figure out you know, what, what is the, the thing that's causing that? Oh, your muffler is falling off or your catalytic converter is broken or, you know, your spark plugs are, are kaput, you know, and we need to replace your spark plugs, whatever it is. And then you replace that muffler or the spark plugs or that one specific part and you're off. You're sort of as good as new, right? The body really isn't like that. Um, the body is, interconnected, deeply, deeply interconnected, all the systems of the body. You know, you don't have a thyroid problem in isolation from everything else. You don't have a testosterone problem in isolation from everything else. You don't have brain fog in isolation from everything else. You don't have 
a gut problem in isolation from everything else. The gut is connected. There's a gut brain axis. There's a gut immune axis. There's a gut lung axis, a gut skin axis, a gut mitochondria axis, right? Everything is connected. So nothing occurs in isolation. Now, I, I really argue that the path to improving our health and our energy levels and our longevity is much less the car mechanics approach uh, where you're doing tests to find one specific broken part, replacing that one broken part. And it's much more the skill set of the car engineer, the, the one who is designing and building a car from scratch that's an amazing car. Like, I want to learn about how to build a great car, not from the mechanic who knows how to diagnose a broken muffler or broken spark plugs and replace them. I want to learn how to build a great car from the, the guy who designs and builds a Ferrari, right? That's a different set of skills and knowledge than the car mechanic. And I, I really argue with the body because everything is so interconnected. What we need to do is be trying to build our body, trying to optimize the function of all the different systems of our body so everything functions better. The body either exists, because everything is, is so interconnected, it either exists in downward spirals of all the different systems of the body functioning more and more poorly and having negative inputs on the other systems, or positive upward spirals of better and better function. To the extent that you, for example, just, just to take one layer of this, so we could talk about nutrition, obviously, but let's, let's say just circadian rhythm and sleep optimization. If you pull that one lever of circadian rhythm and sleep optimization, you will optimize everything. You'll have a positive impact on everything, every other system of your body. We know that the circadian rhythm and sleep hugely influences, just to name a few, hugely influences um, thyroid hormone, cortisol, testosterone, melatonin, um, growth hormone, right? All of those hormones are intimately connected with circadian rhythm. We know that neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, um, orexin, all of those neurotransmitters that impact on mood, motivation, joy, um, emotional states, wakefulness, energy, libido, all these things are impacted by circadian rhythm and sleep. Um, we know that circadian rhythm and sleep relate hugely to autophagy and mitophagy, the ability of our mitochondria to sort of clean themselves up and repair and re regenerate themselves each night while we sleep. So if, if, and that's true, that's true for all of the mitochondria in your body, which are responsible for producing virtually all of the energy for virtually all of the trillions of cells in your body. So if you're pulling that one lever of optimizing your circadian rhythm and sleep, let's say you start wearing blue blockers, you start carving out an hour extra each night for yourself to sleep. You're now optimizing hormones, neurotransmitters, um, cellular regeneration and mitochondrial regeneration throughout your entire body. You're helping everything function better. So, you know, that, that's, that's my approach to optimizing health. And I guess to loop that back into your original question, I think that rather than trying to like looking at somebody who, who has a chronic infection and, um, while it can happen that someone can be otherwise perfectly healthy, and then they're just taken down by, let's say Lyme disease or something like that. 
in general, there's usually a susceptibility there that has weakened the body, that has allowed that, that infection to become chronic instead of the body taking its natural proper course where the infection is fought off and then it's kept at bay, right? It's not chronically active, right? So maybe that's chronic stress that a person's under and the person's in um, you know, a toxic relationship. Maybe they're chronically not sleeping well. Maybe they're chronically eating poorly, maybe they hate their job and they hate their life, right? There's a, there's a lot of different things that could play into why the, that immune system is not working as it should be to keep that infection at bay. But I'm not inclined towards the approach that just says, you've got a chronic infection. Let's throw a bunch of antiviral herbs and drugs at it. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you. And to follow that up, I would just offer safety is so important to the body. You've, you've said the word safe and safety a few times already in this podcast and something specific to like a gut pathogen. You want to make sure that the immune system of the gut is safe and strong before you throw in whatever virals, you know, like immunoglobulins can be really helpful before you target a pathogen. But coming back to this idea of safety, making sure we're not just throwing things at the body that could be stressful and I'm just thinking with chronic fatigue, people don't like to be tired, right? Like the second someone's tired, they're like, I'm not going to be productive. Why would I rest when I could take a stimulant and keep going? So yeah. we keep throwing fuel at the body to try to up-level this energy, but we're just destroying that. Would you say that's like one of those foundational, I guess, ugh, what's the word? Mistakes. <laughs> Crushers, mistakes, <Yeah. laughs> adding fuel. Or do we just need to talk about the, the foundations of like oxidative stress and inflammation? I mean, obviously circadian alignment, getting sunshine, we can always start with those basics, but like how bad is the stimulation that we're reaching for compared mm -hmm. to all the other things? Yeah, great question. So um, it, wouldn't it be wonderful if all you had to do to fix the chronic fatigue epidemic was give everybody a bunch of caffeine and stimulants? Hooray, I'm in. Starbucks on every corner for a reason. They're trying. Yeah, exactly. Like compliancy no. would be tops. Be okay. Yeah. yeah. So this is a really interesting topic and it's fascinating to me because I've been talking about it for several years, but I still find that very few people are aware of how caffeine and stimulants work and what the consequences are. So, and there's something insidious going on here too, because the subjectively, the experience of using caffeine and stimulants is one of, they are giving me a boost. I feel better when I use them, right? Yep. And so <laughs> the, the insidious thing is that while they are making you worse, objectively, they are subjectively making you feel like they're helping you. That's a kind of, that, that's, a, that's a big problem um, that gets a lot of people in trouble. So- mm -hmm. Here's what's going on. Let's talk about how they work. So first of all, the brain has a certain balance of stimulatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters, stimulating, energizing, wakefulness, and inhibitory neurotransmitters that are relaxing, calming, make you sleepy, low energy. And um, obviously, the, ba the proper balance of those shifts throughout the day, depending on whether it's daytime or nighttime, the brain likes a certain balance. Um, but the key thing is that it does like, it's always maintaining a certain balance that it is considering the proper balance of stimulatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters. Now, one of those neurotransmitters is called adenosine. Adenosine is an inhibitory neurotransmitter that is calming and makes you sleepy and low energy. 
And so basically what happens, adenosine gets into adenosine receptors in the brain, and then it triggers a cascade that lowers energy level, makes you sleepy, tired. The way that caffeine works is on adenosine receptors. So when caffeine is introduced into your body, it goes into your brain, and then it, th those caffeine molecules go into the adenosine receptors. But instead of triggering the same cascade that adenosine does, it actually just plugs up the receptor and blocks the adenosine from getting in. So by blocking uh, a neurotransmitter that would, uh, that would normally make you uh, sleepy and low energy, it creates a stimulating, energizing effect. But that is actually a wonderful thing in the short term. Um, if you take people who are what's called caffeine naive in the literature, meaning they don't normally consume coffee or caffeine, and you give them caffeine, you can measure all kinds of improvements in energy levels, in mood, in cognitive performance, in physical performance, um, and those are genuine improvements. And so this is from those studies, we have established, you know, all of this literature that says caffeine gives you a boost in this caffeine makes you perform better on tests. Caffeine, you know, boosts ath athletic performance and endurance and, and time to exhaustion and this, uh, you know, in cyclists and whatever, things like that. And all of that's true, but only in the context of caffeine naive people consuming caffeine and all of that disappears within only about two to three weeks of daily caffeine use. So what's going on is, again, the brain likes a certain balance of those neurotransmitters. So when you are using caffeine on a daily basis and blocking that adenosine from getting in where to, and doing its job, the brain basically says, we're being, overact we're being overstimulated. We need to bring things back into balance. So within less than a couple of weeks, the brain starts making adaptations, negative neurotransmitter adaptations to the caffeine use, where what does it do in response to that adenosine signaling not happening? It creates more adenosine and it creates more adenosine receptors to increase adenosine signaling. So what, this, what happens now is that as soon as the caffeine leaves your system and you don't have caffeine plugging up all those adenosine receptors. You now have a brain with more adenosine and more adenosine receptors, which means more adenosine signaling, which means you've shifted the overall neurotransmitter balance in your brain towards regulating that balance at a lower baseline energy level in the absence of caffeine. Now, the, the one aspect of this that's tricky and that's hard for people to understand is they go, but when I consume caffeine, I feel a boost. Okay. So how do we reconcile the, the fact that people feel a subjective boost from the caffeine with what I just said? Well, the answer is actually well-established in the literature, but very few people are aware of it outside of caffeine scientists. The answer is something called withdrawal reversal. And it turns out that basically the effect of caffeine and coffee consumption, the boost that you feel isn't actually a boost at all. It is actually the reversal of the withdrawal effects of having the caffeine leave your system. So wow. you've, heard, you've heard of people who are addicted to a certain drug and then after they, they get off the drug and then they get withdrawal symptoms. Okay? Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, you get withdrawal symptoms from caffeine in the same day, <laughs> you drink caffeine in, in the morning 
and, and this is true of chronic caffeine consumers. If you drink it in the morning, let's say you've got one or two or three cups of coffee or something like that, by the nighttime or by especially the following morning, you are experiencing withdrawal effects and negative effects, side effects from that that compound leaving your system. So if you've ever seen somebody who consumes lots of caffeine, if you've ever seen them when they wake up in the morning, they're like, almost like, I mean, I've seen some people who are almost like a zombie, you know, their, their bodies and their brains, they're almost in this like half sleep state. And then the first thing they have to do is go make coffee. And, uh, and then once they get the coffee into them, 15 minutes, 30 minutes later, now their brain turns on and they're functioning at full capacity. What, what is going on there, you know, again, is people think they're getting a boost from this. You're not. You're actually just with, you're reversing the withdrawal effects that actually lowered your baseline mood and energy levels and cognitive and physical performance. And in other words, you have now made yourself dependent on caffeine in order to function at what used to be your normal level of energy and mood and cognitive and physical performance. So this is, this is a really insidious thing. And people, people don't understand that the boost they're getting isn't a boost. You're just boosting yourself back up to what used to be your normal. Oh, That's it's such a wild. sad story. <laughs> <laughs> Quick question. We'll just put coffee in place of this caffeine category, the great coffee debate. Everyone's like, oh, it's so nutrient dense. We should have coffee if you can tolerate yeah. it. Would you argue to put coffee in more of a hormetic category and just use it intermittently for hormetic purposes rather than the nutrition category, which some people are, you know, hell bent on saying it's going to make you, uh, yeah, you know, the, 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 the tricky part about coffee is that there is quite a bit of research showing that it does have various health benefits. It is associated with lower rates of various kinds of diseases. So I don't want people to misunderstand me and say, and think that I'm claiming coffee's all bad, there's no benefits, bad, sure. it's all just killing you and whatever. It's a mix, right? It's a mix of some, yeah. imp- some factors that are positive. And if you consume it daily, particularly more than one cup daily, um, you will have negative neurotransmitter effects that lower your baseline levels of energy, make you dependent on it just to function normally. So how do we balance that? My, my best answer to that is use caffeine when you actually need a boost. When you, so like maintain your baseline level of energy such that it's high and you're not dependent on a substance to function normally. And you're not impairing your normal level of function. And then from that position of high baseline function, use a stimulant when you actually need a boost, not as just a daily ritual every day, but as uh, something when you are, are going to work out four days a week before your workout, let's say, or before a really extra hard day at work. Like I have, I have like six podcasts today, um, which is probably three more than I, I'd ideally like to do because it's a bit taxing and I like to spend time with my kids. Um, That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe like I had a coffee this morning, um, but I have it probably three days a week, let's say. And it's, and, and that's all it takes is now you can have a balance between, you know, having some coffee, having some matcha, um, green tea, black tea, whatever you like, um, sometimes, but maybe not necessarily every day, certainly not multiple cups daily. And now you're getting that compound in your system and getting those health benefits, but you're not overdoing it to the extent that 
you're suffering negative side effects. Like let's, let's take exercise as an example or sun exposure. We could look at a lot of things like the sun is amazingly beneficial for, for human health. Um, it's a subject of my next book. I've written a lot about this. Um, and it's, the sun is incredibly powerful and I think hugely underrated and misunderstood. But if you do like five hours of sun exposure every day, you're probably going to have net harm um, in most cases, unless you're of African ancestry and your skin can tolerate that much sun. You are, you're going to suffer, you know, skin damage, sunburn and DNA damage in your skin as a result of that, um, which is probably going to outweigh the positive aspects of the sun exposure. Same is true of exercise. If like exercise is one of the healthiest things that you can do, but it's also the case that if you um, are an ultra marathon runner, you might calcify the arteries around your heart and maybe have a heart attack or something like that because you're overdoing it. So yeah, the, the same, the same is, is true uh, with caffeine. We, we need to be able to use it in a way where we can get benefits from it um, without incurring negative effects. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to the Goldilocks rule with all of that, all these forms of hormesis, like maybe that three minute cold shower is enough rather than doing that 20 minute cold plunge because Joe Rogan did it right. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. always, yeah. always monitoring that. So I, you are an expert on circadian rhythm and I obviously coffee is going to be damaging to that. So I want to kind of stay on this, uh, thought. Um, but what about the role of the mitochondria and the linked circadian rhythm? Can you speak to that? Yeah. There's a lot there. I will say caffeine is not necessarily harmful to circadian rhythm. Um, okay. If it's consumed at the right time of day, in the morning, then right. it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily going to harm your circadian rhythm. It's actually, it is a circadian molecule. It's a circadian amplifier. So there's an argument that, you know, using it in the morning can actually help amplify that. But this is another sort of nuance. Different people metabolize caffeine differently. So uh, some people are slow metabolizers, some people are fast metabolizers. And if you consume it too late in the day, let's say afternoon, for some people it might not be an issue. For other people, that caffeine is going to stay in the body. The half-life is so long that they're still going to have caffeine in their system by the time they're trying to go to bed and it will disturb their sleep, either their ability to go to sleep or their sleep quality. That's me for sure. If I have caffeine right. after one o'clock, done versus our mom, she can have a cup of coffee at 9 p.m. We're like, I don't know how you 11 do 11 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, yeah, there's, <laughs> yeah. There's something, uh, this is even an even further digression, but I have seen people who actually get sleepy from coffee and can consume coffee like right before bed and it helps knock them out. And I, I actually don't, I'm sure somebody has an explanation for that, but I, I don't. Interesting. But yeah, so there's, there's definitely nuances into how people metabolize it. And, and I will say in general, the people who I know who are like that are, uh, are people who drink like typically like four to six cups of coffee every day, at least. Mm. Um, so they probably have a lot of negative neurotransmitter adaptations, but yeah. So the relationship of circadian rhythm with mitochondria is, um, is very complex, but Here's a couple layers to it. Um, I mentioned one before that autophagy and mitophagy depend upon uh, an, an optimal circadian rhythm and deep sleep and adequate sleep time. They also depend on being in a fasted state of physiology. So one key aspect of the circadian rhythm 
is, um, is feeding and fasting windows. So um, we have a central clock in the brain that is primarily responsive to light inputs. This is the, the central circadian clock um, that is regulating many different neurotransmitters and, and hormones and things like that. We also have peripheral clocks in virtually all the tissues of our body from uh, you know, from, from our brain to our heart, to our liver, to our intestines, to our skin, to our muscles. And there, there's, there's clocks in all of these different tissues. And while the circadian clock in the brain is primarily responsive to light inputs, the peripheral clocks and all these other tissues of our body are primarily responsive to nutrition, food inputs. And the goal is to synchronize the two as much as possible. And I am sure you guys have talked about, you know, light and artificial light at night and getting bright light in the morning. And there's a lot of cool stuff there. I'm really into light, but we'll leave that for another time. That's um, your next book, right? No, it'll, sun it, is the it, next it, book. It, it, You've it, done it, a lot will, of red light. It will be in the sunlight book for sure. Yeah. Okay. So the peripheral clocks, which is what I talk a lot about in Eat for Energy, my new book that just came out, is are responsive to these food inputs. And one of the foundational things that we need to do, probably the, the, the most important thing, is optimize our feeding and fasting windows. So in general, it's been shown by a researcher named Sachin uh, Panda, a circadian clock researcher, that over 85% of Americans consume their food with a daily feeding window of between 13 to 16 hours per day. Hmm. Now, What's optimal based on the research is about six to 10 hours per day. Okay. And, and less is not necessarily better. So don't think that, you know, six is necessarily better than 10. I would say the nuance there is, uh, in general, the more overweight and sedentary you are, the more you will benefit from shorter feeding windows and the more, uh, physically active and lean you are, the more that you know, something like approximating a 10 hour window is probably better for you, um, just to, to fuel all your activities, but being in that window is ideal. And what that does is that allows for a 14 hour plus fasting window each night. And that fasting window is critical to allow our body to dip heavily into autophagy and mitophagy, where it's allowing those mitochondria that are dysfunctional, that are worn out and broken down to, um, to, be, to be broken down, sort of chemically digested, and for the body to build new healthy mitochondria. And mitophagy is a, is a quality control process of our mitochondria. Um, it's, our body has to identify and get rid of the dysfunctional uh, mitochondria so that they don't continue to replicate and continue to be the dominant mitochondria in the cell, um, which can also lead to other problems like cancer development. And, but of course, fatigue, certainly if your cells are filled with dysfunctional mitochondria that, that are not producing energy, well, you're going to be much more likely to be fatigued. So that the feeding and fasting cycle, that that's one of the key aspects of how the circadian clock ties into the mitochondria. There's a number of other things, but one other thing I'll mention is melatonin. So melatonin is, uh, first of all, it's not just a sleep supplement. A lot of people think <laughs> of melatonin as like, you know, I go to the yeah. store and I buy my melatonin so I can yeah. sleep better. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Melatonin is a hormone and uh, melatonin is a hormone produced by your, your brain. There's more to that story. That's kind of novel discovery, but 
produced by your brain. And what is really critical about melatonin that most people don't know is not only does it help you sleep, is it, it's not just the sleep hormone, but it's actually a mitochondrial hormone. It's, it's the most potent mitochondrial antioxidant there is. So we are designed every night to saturate, to bathe our mitochondria in melatonin. And that melatonin helps um, repair and protect our mitochondria. And it also interfaces with the internal, what's called the ARE, the antioxidant response element of mitochondria, where it, uh, it actually recharges the internal antioxidants like glutathione and catalase and superoxide dismutase that allow the cell and the mitochondria to be resilient in the face of stress, to detoxify things, to protect themselves against damage from stressors, everything from pathogens to environmental toxicants and everything else. So that, though all of those processes are designed to happen every night while, we're, while we sleep. We want to be engaging in autophagy and mitophagy, and we want to be bathing our mitochondria in melatonin and recharging that internal mitochondrial antioxidant defense system. And if those processes are not happening well as a result of any combination of disruptions to either the central clock or the peripheral clocks from either bad light inputs or uh, bad food inputs, then those processes are not happening. Now, just to give you, a, like to quantify that, there's research showing that just being in standard room lighting in your home, standard fluorescent LED room lighting suppresses melatonin production by the brain by upwards of 70%. So we're not talking, I'm not talking about like a minor wow. effect of like, you know, this suppresses your melatonin by 10% or something like that. I, yeah, I'm saying huge. you, you are massively suppressing your levels of this hormone that is vital for protecting your mitochondria. If none, of, if everything I just said, isn't enough to convince you, I'll also mention there's a huge amount of research showing that melatonin is a powerful anti-cancer compound. And that if you're chronically suppressing your melatonin levels, you're going to be way more prone to cancer in addition to being way more prone to fatigue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think is the link with like night shift workers. We're seeing an increase in cancer because of that. And um, yeah. I even have a, a family member that has cancer and her doctor just put her on, I want to say a hundred milligrams of melatonin a night. Um, yeah. So we're going to see that a lot more, especially with like John Lawrence's work on melatonin. It's no longer the like, only 0.3 milligrams. Like I think for chronic illness, we're going to see a really big explosion in this idea. Yes. Yeah. The high doses are cool. And I love the analogy of bathing in it. I'm like, Ooh, melatonin bath time. <laughs> yeah. You know, that there's yeah. the, there's Shinrin Yoku. That's the Japanese word for what, what it's translated as forest bathing. Oh, right. right. Have, you, have you heard that term? Yeah. So yeah. I always, I, I always like that term, like to bathe oneself in the forest. When I first heard that term, I was like, you just stick a bathtub in the forest and take a bath <laughs> in the forest. No, like you're, you're bathing, you're boring, you're bathing in the forest itself. You're being bathed by the, the, the forest, by the trees. The magic know? of the forest. Yeah. Oh, right. I love yeah. that. When I was in Hawaii last year, I went to the big, oh, I'm going to forget the name of the forest. Can't remember, but just the energy and the air in there, it was magical. Like if mm -hmm. I could just put my house in here, it'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Well, thank you for touching on the melatonin topic. I appreciate that. I know there's more to come. Yeah. yeah. There, there's lots more that we could talk about on melatonin specifically, but I'm hesitant to digress too much on that topic. 
<laughs> yeah, we'll have to oh, have well, yeah, the one. protocols coming out surrounding what we've been experiencing the last two years are interesting. So yes. <laughs> we'll have yeah, you back. Absolutely. Yes. All right. I have a question that I've been thinking about since the very beginning. You mentioned that mitochondrial dysfunction is not caught on a traditional lab test. I'm assuming that goes beyond just um, like really wide traditional ranges. It's not just that we need to look at it through a more specific functional range, but are we just looking at the wrong markers? Do we need to prioritize markers that show oxidative stress, inflammation? Are there specific biomarkers that you would say we should look at for mitochondria? There's a lot of different biomarkers that can measure it indirectly. I'm not, I don't think there's any one particular test that's, that's especially useful for detecting mitochondrial dysfunction. And there's, a, there's so many nuances here. Um, so like you can, you can look at organic acid tests that can t- give you some insight. Potentially you can look, you know, there's studies where they've shown that in people with chronic fatigue, they have lower levels of, for example, acetyl L-carnitine or CoQ10 and things like that. So certain cofactors that are needed for mitochondrial energy production have been shown to be low in people with chronic fatigue. There's a, uh, a test that's been developed by Sarah Myhill, chronic fatigue, um, doctor and researcher in the UK and some of her colleagues called the ATP profile test that has been well-validated in the literature where they measure certain things going on in the mitochondria. There's a mito swab test where you swab the inside of your mouth. There, there's a number of things. I, I'm not overly impressed by any of them, to be honest with you. I wonder but, if that will change in the next 10 years. You, you know, here, here's the thing. If you understand that mitochondria are the most upstream thing that's regulating your energy, there's two things here. Um, then number one, if you've got the symptom of fatigue, you, you already know sort of by definition that your mitochondria are not producing adequate energy. So mm-hmm. like, does it really help you to go do some tests that then further tells you what you already know based on your symptom of not having much energy? That's number one. And then the second thing is any test that you do, any of those things. So the way I describe mitochondria initially is not just that they become dysfunctional and they become like broken. It's, it's also, and, and it's not even necessarily that they are incapable of producing enough energy. It's actually that they are intelligently, intentionally turning down energy production in response to threats. So let's say you get a flu and you're fatigued tomorrow. That isn't because you have massive amounts of mitochondria, mitochondrial dysfunction that occurred between today when you were healthy and feeling great and tomorrow when you're fatigued, right? Your mitochondria are fine. They're just turning down energy production in response to the, to the threat that they're under. Hmm. So there, there's a distinction between having dysfunctional mitochondria and having healthy mitochondria that are responding intelligently to a threat by turning down energy production. And, and that won't show up on really like most tests. There will be eventually metabolomics st- tests that will detect that. Um, like Robert Navio's work where they've done metabolomic studies on people with chronic fatigue syndrome, they can detect that. And they can detect a million different metabolites and they can show that things are being basically downregulated. But yeah, other tests... Right that we have right now, like looking at it's 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 not going to show up as a deficit, a deficiency in uh, carnitine or CoQ10 or something like that. Yeah. It just it doesn't work like that. The other aspect that's important here that we didn't get a chance to touch on uh, previously is 
one of the other huge factors here is actually how many mitochondria you have. It's not just, are your mitochondria healthy or dysfunctional? It's not just, are your mitochondria turning down energy production in response to threats? It's also how many mitochondria are in your cells. Do you have cells that are filled with big, strong mitochondria and lots of them? Or do you have cells filled with very few mitochondria? And to give you some specific numbers, there's research showing that uh, the typical 70-year-old only has about between uh, 25 to 35% of the mitochondrial capacity of a young adult. So why? And, and it's been shown that we lose about 10% of our mitochondrial capacity with each decade of life. So they do these studies where they take a big hollow needle. I don't know if you've ever seen like a biopsy needle. They take, they take a big hollow needle and it, it's not pleasant. They jab it into your thigh. They, they pull out a chunk of muscle tissue and they look at that tissue under a microscope and they literally count the number of mitochondria in your cells. Like what, how many do, does a 20 year old have? How many does a 70 year old have? And that's how they determine, um, those, those statistics that I just shared with you. Hmm. Now, some it, people listening to this might, might be thinking, well, well, that, that really, that's, that's really crappy that, you know, the aging process causes us to lose such a huge portion of our mitochondria. Well, here's the cool thing. When we look at 70-year-olds who are lifelong athletes, exercisers, they have the same mitochondrial capacity as a young adult. So they, it, it is, basically the conclusion is that it isn't just a natural product of the aging process itself that's driving the loss of mitochondria. It is actually the lack of hormetic stress. So as a, a way of illustrating this point, if you've ever broken an arm or leg, you have a cast on for six or eight weeks, and then you get that cast off two months later, you look down at your arm or your leg, and it's half the size of the other one. Yeah. And, and, and that's because those muscles atrophied in response to not being stimulated, not being challenged and used. And that happens in just two months, two months. So you can imagine what happens internally at the mitochondrial level if you're not stimulating and challenging your mitochondria over the course of not just two months, but two decades, five decades of life, right? And, and that, is, that is exactly what happens at the mitochondrial level. The body is ruthless at getting rid of any tissue that is not needed for survival. So if you're telling your body, hey, you don't need these biceps and triceps or these forearm muscles or these, these leg muscles while it's in a cast, that's the signal that's being communicated to the body, the body goes, oh, I guess we don't need that tissue. Let's get rid of all that energetically costly tissue because it, right now it's just a liability for our survival if it's not needed for survival. And the body does the exact same thing internally with our mitochondria. So it is absolutely a case of use it or lose it. If you don't challenge your mitochondria through hormetic stress, they will atrophy and they will die off. And that ties back into this dual role of the mitochondria, either as energy generators, either in energy generation or cellular defense, because the fewer mitochondria you have in your cells, the lower your resilience threshold, meaning the easier it is for stressors to overwhelm your mitochondrial capacity and send them into defense mode where you're now fatigued instead of energetic. Does all of that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Mm, I mean, a yeah. lot of it's adaptation. Your body 
It's going to adapt to whatever you're inputting. So, yep. yeah, I think that's good news. Totally. <laughs> totally. And well, the, the, the good news yeah. is this, is that there's such a thing called mitochondrial biogenesis mm. where we can reverse that process. We can, um, if we have low mitochondrial capacity, let's say we're an old person, we've lost a lot of our mitochondria. We can now engage in hormetic stressors, in different types of exercise, in the use of different kinds of phytochemicals, um, in breath holding practices, in fasting, in heat exposure and cold exposure, and combining some of these things together in a way where we stimulate the creation of new mitochondria from scratch. We can regrow them. So that's the, that's the really good news. Yeah. That's very empowering to hear. So wonderful. Well, Ari, thank you so much. You are just full of so much incredible wisdom. We're so grateful that you spent the time with us. Um, if we can leave our audience with just one final piece of advice, something that you would recommend they start doing today to optimize their health and wellness, what would that be? I would say, let me give, let me give two. I would say, um, focus on your feeding and fasting windows, dial that in and commit to a specific routine. So just as you know, um, one of my friends is Michael Bruce, who's considered the, the sleep doctor and his number one piece of advice for optimizing your sleep and circadian rhythm is nothing fancy. It's consistent sleep and wake times commit to religiously going to sleep and waking up at the same time every day. And I would say in line with that, to optimize your peripheral circadian clocks and help synchronize them with that central clock in the brain, commit to eating at the same, um, having the same exact feeding and fasting windows every day. And then the second thing I'll mention is integrate hormetic stress in your life through the, some of those different practices that I just mentioned. You have to make sure you're stimulating and challenging your mitochondria because it is absolutely the case that if you're not using them, you are losing them. Wonderful advice. I think we it can is all be- very nice to know that we can strengthen our mitochondria and they're like, it sounds like they're, they're there, they're ready, they're willing. So thank you so much for sharing that advice. <laughs> We're going to send our audience uh, to your resources. Can you tell them where to find you? Yeah, my website's theenergyblueprint.com and uh, and then my new book just came out, Eat for Energy, which goes into a lot of these topics uh, in much greater depth and, and how to use nutrition to pull on all these different levers from the circadian rhythm to gut health to brain health to body composition, optimizing for fat loss and muscle gain and, and blood sugar regulation. And then, uh, and then there's part two of the book, which is all about superfoods and supplements for enhancing energy levels. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's a comprehensive look and lots of goodies in there. We know everyone will enjoy it. So Ari, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Out. It was absolutely a pleasure chatting with you guys. And, uh, and thank you for asking such great questions and being great hosts. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you. And thanks to everyone that tuned in today. We'll see you next time. Love this episode of the biohacker babes podcast head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.